that last song that we, we just sang, It Is Well With My Soul, um, is my favorite hymn. Um, there, there are a lot of great hymns, and there are a lot of hymns that I love, but there's none that I love as much as It Is Well With My Soul. And I don't, honestly, I mean, I know why from a message perspective, but it's been my favorite since I was a little kid. Um, I used to just love uh, hearing when, when I'd see that song written in the bulletin that we were going to do it. And, and on uh, nights where our music minister would do favorite hymn Sunday night or Sunday morning, he would just have people call out their favorite hymn. You could rest assured if I was there, we were singing hymn number 410. I was one of those kids that, you know, when, when the, the brother Chuck, have you done that before? Okay, so you'll relate to this. But I was one of those kids that when, as soon as you said favorite hymn, a hand went up, and it was always a kid, and they always seemed to have the same song. Now, some kids like to pick songs that no one knows just to see if they can stump the music minister. Now, that wasn't me. I had my hand up, and I knew exactly what I wanted to sing, and I could... Um, I haven't been a music minister for years, but even before I became a music minister, I knew exactly where It Is Well With My Soul was located in my hymnal, so I didn't even have to look for it. So as soon as he said favorite hymns, I'd raise my hand, because I, I knew I wanted to sing hymn number 410, It Is Well With My Soul. I, it's just my favorite hymn, and there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, but it is one of the hymns, as of all the other ones that we've been looking at, that has a very rich... Um, history and origin that goes with it. And, um, and, and the emphasis of this is found in Psalms chapter 34. The idea, the basic idea, comes from Psalm chapter 34. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning in Psalm 34. And then we're going to look at both what Scripture says and what uh, the writer of this word, has, uh, of the song, has penned, and how it correlates with Scripture and why it's such a great him for us to sing uh, as a church. And in Psalm chapter 34, uh, in verse 19, it says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you'd bless the reading of your word. And now as we begin to examine your word this morning and the many various texts that we're going to look at, uh, I pray that I would decrease and that your spirit living in me would increase and that the words would be shared this morning would be your words and not mine. Father, that you would affect us with your words this morning, uh, that we'd be forever changed by them, and that we would respond however you lead us to respond to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Psalm chapter 34, just verse 19, very obscure verse. It's not one of those that people would pick up one. It's not one that, that many people have memorized. I mean, it's a great verse to memorize, but, you know, most people, if you say, uh, what does Psalm 34, 19 say? Most people are going to have to look it up. It's not one of those texts that many people memorize, but it is a great text because it reminds the righteous person that God delivers the righteous. Now, listen to what he says again. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Okay, so the writer of this psalm is making it very clear that those who are righteous are going to be afflicted. And not only are they going to be afflicted some, and in some ways, it says they are afflicted in many ways. Now, and then he comes back and he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but... I always like that, by the way, when you see but, because he's about to transition into normally something pretty amazing. 
And here he says, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, some of you may read that text and go, well, you know, Brother Dwayne, I don't know if that's exactly true because I've been in afflictions before and I haven't been delivered out of them. Or I'm in an affliction right now and I haven't been delivered out of them. Well, the truth be told, you have to focus on the first aspect of that verse when he says, the righteous are afflicted. And we need to understand a very significant truth, and that's what the song It Is Well is going to teach us as we go through it, and that is the righteous have already been delivered. The righteous have already been delivered, no matter what comes your way, no matter if it's a good thing, a bad thing, whether or not it's a spiritual problem, a health problem, a physical problem, a money problem, a job problem, doesn't matter what the problems are, whether or not they're physical or spiritual, the righteous are delivered out of all of their problems. Now, there is a, there is a twofold way of looking at that. There is a, a present deliverance, and then there's a future deliverance, which is the ultimate deliverance that's talked about in Psalm chapter 34. And so Horatio Spafford, the writer of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, he understood this text. Now, I, I want to share with you a couple things about this song as we go through, just like I've done all, all the other ones. But Horatio Spafford was a, a hard-working, successful attorney that lived in Chicago in the late 1800s. Um, and he had invested heavily in real estate. He was a very successful lawyer and an attorney. He had lots of uh, different things that he had invested in. Um, he had many things in his life that people would look at him and would consider him a, a person to admire. He had many admirable uh, traits, if you will, or qualities. He, he was devoted to his wife. He was a, a devoted husband. He was a good father to his children. He was a true family man. Uh, he was a growing Christian. He, he, had, he had accepted Christ and was a growing believer, not only in learning what the Word of God said, but he was very active in trying to live out what the Word of God told him to do. As a matter of fact, he was uh, a good friend and, and uh, compatriot, uh, uh, a, a friend or a cohort of, of uh, Dwight L. Moody, who pastored in Chicago. He, he come to Christ under Dwight L. Moody's ministry in Chicago, and, and, and he was growing in his faith, he was active in his church, um, so much so that when D.L. Moody would go do evangelistic events, it was not uncommon for Horatio Spafford to go with him and go along and be like a counselor or someone there to, to witness and to talk to people about the gospel. So he was a devoted Christian growing in his faith. Um, he lived out his faith, again, not only in, what, in knowing the Bible, but tried to obey its teaching. Uh, he worked diligently to help other people. Um, before the Civil War, uh, Horatio was, was very involved in the abolitionist movement, trying to abolish slavery. And then uh, in Chicago, where he lived in, in 1871, I believe it was, uh, the, the great Chicago fire that destroyed most of Chicago came through, and he was devoted to helping his fellow Chicago people get through that. So he was an admirable man, one that many people would look at and see uh, him and see his life and say he was very admirable. And on top of all of that, one of the things that he got really good at was writing hymns. And he was writing hymns that would be put to music for use by D.L. Moody 
during his evangelistic meetings in both America and in Europe. And one of those particular songs that he wrote is, It Is Well With My Soul. However, with all of the admirable qualities that he had, he was very well acquainted with life's troubles and life's difficulties. Now, you're going to know some of his story because I've shared it before, but you're probably not going to know everything about him. So let me share with you some of the difficulties in his life. The first thing that happened, a lot of it, I mean, there was probably negative before this, but a lot of it happened within a three-year time span. But in 1870, he had a four-year-old son that was named after him, Horatio Spafford Jr., or the second, um, got, got scarlet fever and died as a four-year-old. So he lost his only son at four years old. Then in 1871, when the great fire of Chicago came through, he had, he had very much invested in real estate, and he took a severe financial hit. It, almost all of his properties were destroyed in the fire of 1871. And then in 1873, things have finally started to come around, finally started to get better, and in 1873, his friend D.L. Moody was in England and was doing one of his revival meetings, evangelistic meetings, and Horatio decided that he was going to take his family over to England and, and for, to, for, to kind of get away for a while, but also to go on, to help D.L. Moody's mission. He was going over there. It was kind of part vacation, part mission trip, kind of like mission trips that a lot of churches take today. Uh, I mean, that's what it is. You get, it's part vacation, part mission trip. I mean, I don't think I've ever been on a mission trip or heard of a mission trip through a church where they don't do at least something fun while they're there. And, and that was kind of the same thing. He wanted to get away, maybe reset. Things were starting to settle down. He had lost his son, lost a lot of his property, lost a lot of his finances. And, and so him and his, his four daughters and his wife headed out towards uh, New York. They were going to get on a boat and travel to England, and on the way, um, he, there was some urgent business that come up, and he wasn't going to be able to travel with them over to England, and so the plan was for the mother to go ahead and take the four girls and go to England, and he was going to join them in about two weeks, and so he gets them to New York and gets them on the boat, and then he immediately gets back on the train to head back to Chicago, and in November of 1873, his wife and four girls were on a boat called the Villa du Havre, and, or Havre, however you want to pronounce it. It was a French vessel. And they were headed towards England on a crystal clear winter night, and their boat somehow struck an iron vessel, an iron shipping vessel. And the story is that it literally just ripped the boat open and water started pouring in. It, it sank in a very short amount of time. There were 227 passengers on that boat, and only 47 survived. One of the survivors was Horatio's wife. And when she was found, she was drifting in the ocean, uh, holding on to um, some wreckage, keeping her afloat. And when she made it, took the survivors, the boat that came and took the survivors, took them to Wales. And when she cabled back to her husband, she sent a cable to her husband that just simply said, saved alone. What shall I do? And so Horatio receives this message 
after he's lost his son, after he's lost his business, after he's lost most of his finances, things are finally starting to get better. He loses his four remaining daughters in a bad boating accident. And immediately he gets on a train, goes back to New York, catches, gets on a boat, and goes to meet up with his wife. And on his way to meet up with his wife, the captain of the boat he was on called him at, this, at some point and said, the place we are passing over, this is where the boat went down. And he went out on the deck of this boat, and he was a hymn writer, as you could say, and these words came to his mind. It is well, the will of God be done. And he went on to meet up with his wife and get her, and, and um, as he picked her up and began to travel back home and, and try to reset his life, he, he sat down and he penned the rest of the hymn to go with those words, It is well with my soul. Now, we could set, stop right there, and any of us could say, Man, that guy went through some stuff. I don't know about you, but that's a lot. In, in a two-year, basically two, three-year time frame, he lost his son, he lost his four daughters, he lost his, his basically his business. He, I mean, that's a, that's a lot to go through in about three years. Yet, yet, a few years later, him and his wife start over and have another son. And as their son was growing up, they decided that God was calling them to the mission field so he uprooted his wife and his new son and moved from Chicago all the way to Israel to be a missionary. And while he was in Israel as a missionary, he, con he contracted malaria and died. Now, that, that all happened in about a 10-year time frame. So, so it's definitely a song that we can see the writer was greatly affected by tragedies in his lifetime. Yet, he penned a hymn that's my favorite hymn. It's many people's favorite hymn. And it's a song that was first heard in 1876, just a mere three years after his daughters died. And since then, throngs and throngs of people have embraced his words. Why? It's because in my mind and in my heart, it's because all of us can cite some examples of hardship and heartbreak. I think every person that's a believer has been through afflictions. And we relate to someone, or we relate to words, to a song of someone who's going through afflictions in their life. All of us have experienced some unfairness in life, and that's what makes this song a great hymn of our faith, because Spafford points us to some powerful truths, comforting facts, if you will, that help us when sorrows threatened to overwhelm us in our life. He, this song underscores some vital principles that allow our souls to be well when our life is not well. And that's something that is desperately needed for believers because we need to understand as believers in Christ, not everything is easy. Not everything is going to go perfect. Not everything is going to go our way. We are going to have afflictions in our life. Just like the psalmist said in Psalm 34, Great are the afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. 
But see, we live in a culture today that believes if you become a Christian, then all your afflictions go away. But the truth be told, the afflictions just increase when you become a believer in Christ. So how does one get to the point where in the midst of life's troubles, in the midst of life's problems, when life is not well, you get to the point where you can sing, even so, it is well with my soul. And in order for us to do that, I think the author of this song pins in four verses some vital principles that are needed in order to help us have peace in our souls when everything else around us is anything but peaceful. And I want to share these with you as we close up uh, this morning. And this is the theological emphasis of this particular hymn from the Word of God. Now, I want you to understand there are four of them. And the first one that I want you to understand is verse 1 is teaching about a learned trait. A learned trait. You see, verse 1 points out two aspects of life that we all encounter. Verse 1 points out aspects that are good and aspects that are bad. Now, look at verse 1 with me real quick. It says, When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. Now, what he's saying is when peace is around me. When I have peace in my life. Now, when are the times you and I normally have peace in our life? Isn't that when things are going good? When things are good, we're normally at peace. When things are not so good, we're normal. that's normally when we're not at peace. I don't know about you, but I don't normally sit around worrying about things when everything's going well. I tend to worry about things when things are not going so well. And that's what he's talking about. When peace like a river is in my presence. And then he says this. When sorrows like sea billows roll. So now he's, he's going, when, when peace is around me or when sorrow is around me. Matter of fact, when sorrow is around me like sea billows. He's talking about being in the midst of an ocean that's in a storm. Now, I've been in the ocean, and I don't like to get in it too far, but I can tell you this much. It's powerful. The ocean is powerful. And he's talking about someone who's in the midst of an ocean in a storm, and the, the billows, the sea is billowing over him. That is powerful. And so now he's talking about things that aren't so good. So when sorrows are abounding like sea billows in my, in my life, when life is just hitting you hard, but then note what he says, whatever my lot. So he said good or bad, whatever my lot. And then he says this very statement thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul so so how is it possible for it to be well with your soul when things are good and when things are bad well note what he said thou hast taught me to say it's a learned lesson you see, being content in all aspects of life, whether or not things are good or things are bad, is a learned trait. And, and, and listen, that is actually very scriptural. Listen to what Paul told the church in Philippians chapter 4. He says this in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned, and he uses that word, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. 
and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Alyssa's smirking because she knows what's coming. I know it is. That verse, Psalms 4.13, is the most misquoted verse of Scripture. Almost every athlete I know, it's their favorite verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I was like, that's not even what he's talking about. He's telling the church that he's learned to be content. How do you learn to be content when you're in want? He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's where contentment comes from. It comes from Christ, and it is a learned trait. Now, a learned trait implies a teacher. Well, who's the teacher? Well, the writer of the, the It Is Well With My Soul says his teacher is God, and the greatest lesson that he uses is experience. You see, as we gradually learn this vital lesson, that, that God gives us the strength when we need it. He does what we can never do on our own. He's the one that, that teaches us to be content whether we're in good times or whether we're in bad times, and we learn that through experience. We slowly begin to develop and understand and really have a more deep belief that God really has us in His hands. He is really taking care of us. Most of all, we learn in those moments, particularly when things are bad, slowly we begin to learn as a believer that God is not only with us in those moments, but he draws very near to us in those moments. See, it's hard for someone to understand that that's never been through any difficulty. You see, I've had people say to me, I don't understand how so-and-so has so much faith in the situation they're in. And I'm like, you can't know because you've never been there. But God gives you what you need in your moment of need. I can do all things, not on my own, through Christ who strengthens me. And so the first verse has everything to do with a learned trait that we, we don't just naturally have peace when everything's going our way or when everything's not going our way. It's something that's learned through experience, through time. It is a learned trait that we learn from God as we go through those experiences. Then the second thing that he teaches us, not only is, it, is peace a learned trait in the midst of the things going on around us, but he teaches us what's called a thwarted attack. Verse 2 kind of shifts to a completely different idea. You see, in verse 2, the, the, the author of this song reminds us that part of our bad times is not even necessarily due to, to physical problems or worldly problems, but many are due to attacks from Satan. In verse 2, he talks about Satan buffeting. Look at it. In verse 2, though Satan should buffet. Now that word, when I see the word buffet, I think of food. In fact, we, we used to have a weekly buffet in college, and that's what we called it. And when, when you'd come into the, to the music lab at East Central and someone yelled buffet, you know you were going to Simple Simon's Pizza or Pied Piper. Sorry, you were going to Pied Piper's Pizza and Ada for a $2.99 buffet. That's where we were going, and you just hopped in, you went, and that's what we did. It was called buffet. But, but the word buffet has nothing to do with food, by the way. To, to buffet someone literally means to strike them sharply. And so the author of this, it says, though Satan is striking me sharply, 
though he's attacking me sharply, then he says, though trials should come. How does Satan normally strike us? How does he normally attack us? Through trials. He puts us in situations where uh, he, he, he tempts us to do things that we ought not do, and he puts things in front of us. Anyway, he's going all through this, and then the author reminds us that, that we have an enemy that is constantly trying to attack us, yet even in the midst of this, he can still say it as well with my soul. Even in the midst of being attacked by Satan, he's able to say it is well with my soul. Now, I can tell you, as a pastor, sometimes you have a big old target on your back by Satan. And I can also tell you, it's not easy to say it is well with my soul when he's attacking you. Or your ministry, or the church that you're pastoring, or the people that you're shepherding. It's not easy to say it is well with my soul when you are attacked by Satan through various trials that are coming your way. Yet the author pins, it is well with my soul. How? How does one get to the point that they can say, it is well with my soul, even in the midst of being attacked by Satan himself? Well, look at the, what the rest of verse 2 says. He says this, he says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. What he's doing and what Spafford does here beautifully is bring the singer back to a very deep theological truth found in Scripture, and that's that Satan's attacks are ultimately thwarted in the gospel of, G of Christ. You see, that the Scripture tells us that no matter what Satan throws at you or how many times you fail because of his attacks and trials— Christ has shed his blood for you. And listen to what Scripture tells us that brings. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says this. Paul's told the church in Ephesus, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And then John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, says, And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And so he's reminding them that even when Satan is attacking you, even when he's throwing his darts at you, and he's bringing the trials, or he's striking you sharply, all of that is ultimately thwarted in the gospel of Christ. Christ shed his blood for you, and he forgave you, and ultimately, what has that led to? Satan's been rendered defeated. Isn't that what Scripture teaches? Satan has been rendered defeated, not by you or by me, but by the gospel, by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. The power of the blood to save people from their sins, even though Satan can attack and he can throw rocks and he can throw darts and he can do all of that. He can't touch your spirit because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's telling us here, that, that we need to understand Satan's attacks are ultimately thwarted in the gospel. When was the last time that Satan was attacking you, and it was an attack from Satan, not because of something silly you've done on your own, but it's something that just Satan was attacking that you set in focus and remembered that Jesus has already died for you. And he's already rendered Satan defeated. Do you know what's interesting to me in Scripture? One of the things that's interesting to me 
is we're told to flee sexual immorality, but we're not told to flee Satan. Did you ever notice that? He says to resist, draw near to God, and resist the devil. We don't run from Satan. Why? Do you and I, on our own strength, have any power to defeat Satan? No. <laughs> no. No, we don't. But Jesus does, and his shed blood is what renders Satan defeated. That's why we draw near to him and then can resist him in the blood of Christ. And that's what he's reminded us. Even if Satan attacks, there's peace that's coming. The third thing that we need to find this morning is, is a secured peace, according to our text. There's a secured peace, and it's kind of similar to what we're going through here in these thwarted attacks. But, but what verse 3 is telling us is another truth that brings peace to our souls that doesn't really have to do with physical issues. In verse 3, the focus is simply on the gospel, but specifically, it's on the depth by which the, the, uh, the death of Christ on the cross died for our sins and what it did. Listen, listen to the words again. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Now listen, verse 3 is dealing with peace being well at your soul that comes from understanding that the gospel has secured your peace with God. Now why is that important? Why do we need to sing about that? Or why does he write that here? Well, let me ask you a question. How many times have you, after sinning, after you sinned, felt like a total failure. How many times have you felt like God is going to abandon you and you couldn't blame him because you just constantly keep letting him down? You ever felt that way? You ever felt like, man, if I mess up one more time, God's going to walk away from me. And who can, who, who can I blame but myself? God, you, that sin that you've convicted me of for years and I repent of and I turn away from and then it just keeps creeping back up in my life over and over and I, then I fall back into it and then all of a sudden I'm right back to where I started and I feel like a total failure. And there's a song out today called No Matter What and the, the opening line is a lot of us grew up believing at any moment we could lose it all. That at the drop of a hat, God might turn his back and move on. A lot of us feel like we blew it, thinking that we're just too far, or we've gone just too far, or we're gone too far gone. How many of you have ever felt that way when you sin? You mess up and you feel like a failure. How did I let God down again? I want you to know I've been there, and it's not peaceful when you feel like a failure, when you feel like you've let God down. Yet in the midst of this, that's why verse 3 is so important. Look at what he says. My sin, oh the bliss, greatness, beauty, of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross 
and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Spafford is reminding us that the sin that causes you to feel this way has already been paid for. When Jesus died, he didn't just die for some of your sin. He died for all of your sin. You see, Scripture tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 through 28, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once, at the end of the age, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of your sin. Now, should that give you permission to go out and continue to live in sin? No. That's what Paul would say. Absolutely not. What it does is it reminds us that you're not a failure. Actually, it reminds us of this. You've always been a failure. Yet Christ died for all of your sin. Now, who is the one, and that's why it comes back to verse 2, who is the one that throws your sin up in your face and tries to make you feel like a failure? Is that God? No. Yeah, it's God. He's just trying to convict you. Listen, there's a huge difference between conviction of sin and, and making one feel the way this is talking about. To feel like a failure. You see, conviction of sin is always for reconciliation, always to draw you back to him, not to beat you down and make you feel worse. By the way, if you've confessed your sin before God, like the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if I confess my sin, then God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So if I've confessed my sin and he's cleansed me from my sin, who's the one that keeps bringing that back up? Is it God? No, it's Satan who continually brings your sin back up and goes, yeah, if you were such a good Christian, you wouldn't do stuff like that. You wouldn't have said that thing, or you wouldn't have thought that thought, or you wouldn't have done this, or you wouldn't have done that. And that's why verse 3 is such a great verse, because it brings a singer to an understanding that my sin, all of it, has been atoned for. Thanks be to God. What a great and glorious thought. And then the last thing that he teaches us is a perfected peace. One day, the the death of Christ has secured our peace, and we can live at peace today. But the last thing, verse 4, talks about a day that's coming when our peace will be perfected for all eternity. Listen to what he says in verse 4. And Lord, haste the day when when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back, As a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Now, I want you to note something in that fourth verse. You ever looked at the words themselves in the fourth verse down at the very end? Even so? They're in quotation marks, which means he's quoting something. What's he quoting? 
The only place in Scripture you find those two words together is in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Let me read it to you. He says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The singer here, I always read those words like, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, all this is going to happen, even so, even though that's happening, it's well with my soul. And I thought, that doesn't make any sense, because the return of Christ was supposed to be a good thing. Why is he saying, even so, I'm at peace with all this happening, when that's supposed to be a good thing? He's not saying, even so, I'm happy. He's saying, even so, come, it's well with my soul bringing the singer to an understanding that one day Jesus is going to return and everything will be made right. We will be permanently at peace in our souls. See, we've just about finished our study in Revelation on Wednesday night and we've walked through all these judgments and all these problems and all this stuff that's about to happen but we've reached the end where now we've just finished what's called the great white throne judgment and God has now judged all the unrighteousness of the earth he has cast those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life in the lake of fire Satan's been cast in the lake of fire the, the false prophet and the antichrist have been thrown into the lake of fire that's all done and now in chapter 21 which we're about to start is everything's about to be made new and that's when all things are made new meaning we will have perfect peace. There will be no more sin. There will be no more crying. There will be no more judgment. There will be no more sickness or pain or sorrow or any of that. All that's going to be made new, and that's what we're about to study in Revelation, and that's what he's talking about. When Christ comes back, all of it will be set, uh, set right. Everything will be taken care of, and I will no longer have to worry about being at peace in good times or peace in the bad times because I'm going to be at peace at all times for all eternity with God. He is singing about the great and glorious day of the Lord, saying, even so come, it is well, and it will be well for all eternity. It kind of reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, when he says, for our light and momentary affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. One day, Jesus is going to return, and he's bringing perfect, perfected peace with God with him. And what a great and glorious day that'll be. It was because of his unwavering faith in all of these truths that Horatio Spafford did not disintegrate with the loss of his, for, well, with, first with the loss of his son then with the loss of his business, then with the loss of his four daughters, and ultimately with the loss of his own life. It was only because he believed that God would be with him no matter what, that nothing would ever separate him from the love of God, and by, only by his faith in God that he was able to say, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul.